Chapter Two, Part One of Miss Grantley's Girls and the Stories She Told Them by Thomas Archer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Chapter Two: The Silver Goblet, Part One. There was a time when on rare occasions it flushed with the glow of rare cold wine spiced with fragrant spices, or, better still, held the essence of odorous flowers distilled into subtle perfume. Need I say that this goblet is old silver? It was in France that it held a place of honour in the house. That house was one of note in Languedoc, not that its owner was noble by birth, but he was of the great protestant families the old huguenots whose undaunted spirit louis the fourteenth could not quell even with the fortresses that he built to frown them into submission or with the help of a fierce soldiery they were troublous times even long afterwards when anton dormeur owner of looms and manufacturer of velvet went about with a serious face and trusted few of his neighbours Anton Dormeur was a man who kept his own counsel, and when the persecutions had for a time been stayed, he saved money, hoping to rebuild the fortunes of his house for those two daughters who were but children when his wife died, and left a vacant place that never could be filled. They were lovely, these girls, each in a different fashion the elder tall slender dark-haired haughty with the complexion of a peach the younger soft and fair with locks that hung like silken skeins upon a neck of snow and eyes of that dark changeful sheen that is either grey or black or blue as you seek to look into their depths hers were the plump white fingers that pulled the delicate rose-leaves with which this cup was filled till the air of that gloomy room was fresh with the odours of a garden after an evening rain. Matilda, her dark, proud sister, loved lilies best, and set them in a jewelled vase. That vase perished in the great calamity that fell upon the house, and the silver cup was among the few relics that were saved. Alas! the beautiful, imperious Matilda perished also in those evil times. Yes, this beautiful creature, whose coming seemed to lighten the dim room in the old chateau with its hangings of amber damask, its gilded panels framed with long slips of looking-glass, its satin chairs, its quaint carved cabinets filled with rare knick-knacks of ivory carvings, jade stones, jewelled daggers, boxes of filigree, and rare cups of porcelain, like great opals gleaming with strange lights that paled the pearls with which their rims were set there were tables and tripods too bearing bronzes and oriental jars filled with scented woods and spices but it was over this silver cup that the sweet glowing face of sarah dormeur bent as she stood watching for her lover's fluttering signal amidst the trees that belted the sloping parterre beyond the broad stone balcony on which the windows opened for the father anton dormeur was averse to young dufarge who though he belonged to a protestant family among the tanners of Alais, was a man of the people without that connection with the old nobility 
which the Huguenots cherished, even though they suffered continually by the laws that king and nobles put in force against them. The Protestants were loyal to the caste which yet refused to own them, though they were of the best blood in France, or owned them secretly and in fear, lest to be identified with the heretics might bring fire and sword upon themselves. Thus old Dormer forbade Sarah to have any more to say to Dufarge, but encouraged the lover of his eldest girl, a man of twice her age, the grim and saturnine Berthold, by birth seigneur of an estate near Lausère, where, however, he lived only on sufferance, for the title had been abated after the persecutions following the Edict of Nantes, and, though Berthold was rich, he had abandoned both title and the display that belonged to it. He was just an alliance as the stately reserved manufacturer might have been supposed to choose for his eldest daughter, and indeed, after they were married, he would go and stay for days together at his son-in-law's house, a place less gloomy for him now that the light had gone out of his own. For Sarah, having pleaded in vain, fled with her lover to the north, and there they were married. After this they hoped and believed that the old man would relent. He never relented, or at least never to their knowledge. As his sweet fair daughter knelt to him, her golden hair streaming about her, her hands held up in supplication, he denounced her in words taken from holy scripture, and would have struck her but that the young husband stood with earnest eyes and folded arms he having knelt in vain, or, as he said, bent his pride to his love for his sweet wife's sake. So Sarah Dufarge went out cursed, undowered, and an orphan, from the old house, and Père Dormeur was left desolate indeed. Yet amidst the gloom that settled on his life, and the hard unyielding determination, which resisted any attempts on the part of her sister to bring him to receive his disowned daughter again. The manufacturer had frequent struggles with his pride and obstinacy. They were scarcely acknowledged even to himself. He thought he could trample the suggestions of nature underfoot, and he succeeded in so far as to suffer in silence, and to make no sign of yielding, nor of admitting the possibility of foregoing his resentful purpose. He had much to occupy his thoughts at that time, for there were rumours of renewed persecutions of the Protestants by command of bishops and clergy. Not contented with refusing them the legal registration of marriage and the certificate of death, it was said that a general confiscation of property was ordered and that recantation or death by fire and sword might once more be the doom of the sectaries. Anton Dormeur was frequently at Allais with Berthold, and the people there whispered that it would go hard with the manufacture when the dragoons came. He had already made some preparations, however. Always in communication with the refugees who had settled in Spitalfields and Coventry, he held money in England. This was pretty well understood, but what few people knew was that for weeks before the blow fell he had had a ship ready, and that some of his most valuable effects and merchandise were stowed among the cargo. 
This very cup was hidden away in a case, surrounded by silk brocade and velvet, clothes and lace. For days the vessel swung with the tide, waiting for Anton Dormeur, who sought to bring his daughter Mathilde and her husband with their child to be his companions in flight. But Bartholde delayed loath to part from the farms and land that were his birthright. He and his little boy, the first and only child, were on a visit to the old lonely house and its grave master, when a messenger, his horse covered with blood and foam, came thundering at the door, with the fearful intelligence that the alarm was ringing at Allais, and that the persecutions of the Protestants had begun. Bartold was in the saddle in a minute. "'Stay for nothing, but bring my daughter!' "'Come on straight for your lives to Saint-Jean,' cried the old man. "'There will be post-horses there, and I will order relays along the road where the people know me. Meantime I will take the boy. He will be safe with me.' They never met again in this world. Bartol died fighting on his own threshold. His wife, the beautiful Mathilde, perished, perhaps in the flames.' At all events, a wild figure was seen at an upper window, just before the great leaden roof of the chateau curled and fell. Fire and sword spread in a widening circle round that district. The house of Anton Dormeur was sacked. Achille Dufarge and his wife, the lovely Sarah, were in Paris, where no word reached them till long after, and then only by a stranger an old workman of the factory in Languedoc. So the months went by, and then came the awful revolution that put an end to the royal family, and enthroned the guillotine. Then the revolution passed out of the hands of men, and the destinies of France seemed to be in the keeping of murders like Robespierre and Couton. By that time the old man and his grandson were in England, the boy having grown to be a tall and handsome youth. On the doorposts of a tall, gaunt-looking house in a street of that strange part of London, lying between Spitalfields and Norton Folgate, and known as the Liberty of the Old Artillery Ground, might be seen the words A. Dormeur, Silk Manufacturer. It was a dim-looking place enough where the yellow blinds were nearly always drawn over the front windows, and the summer's dust collected in the corners of the high flight of steps, and was blown round and round in little eddies, along with bits of string and snippings of patterns or shreds of silk and cotton. The front door stood open every day from ten till five, to give buyers access to the warehouse in which Anton Dormeur, old, withered, slightly bent, and with a set look upon his face, which even his rare smiles failed to disturb, unrolled pieces of silk, made bargains, examined with a critical eye, and with the aid of a magnifying glass the fabrics brought in by the weavers, and in fact carried on his trade as though he had forever been separated from the tragedy which befell him in Languedoc nearly fourteen years before. And yet that heavy affliction darkened his mind as he rolled and unrolled his silks, or carefully matched the skeins that came from the dyers. 
The sun was shining through the windows, the lower panes of which were dulled in order to obtain a clear high light, but the cloud upon his puckered brow was not lifted. Hour by hour the warehouse clock ticked away the afternoon. Customers departed. The sound of the scale and the clatter of reels and bobbins in another warehouse beyond the long passage had ceased since midday. Presently some passing thought, too bitter for absolute self-control, crossed the old man's mind, and he bowed down his grey head for a moment upon his folded hands. But the next instant glanced round with the half-startled look of a man who fears he has betrayed himself. He was busy over his patterns again, as he noted that a young man at the other end of the room was regarding him with a wistful, pitying look. Come, Antoine, he said, you have had a long day's work, and we dined early. It is time you had finished your ledger for the day. Come and help me put up these pieces, and then get you into the fresh air. Would that I could make the old house more cheerful for thee, boy. But remember, it is all thine own one day, and do not add to the sorrows of the past anxiety for the future the young man had come to his side a slender handsome fellow with an olive cheek curling hair and a dark eye both frank and fearless and you grandpere he said touching the old man's hand why will not you go out and seek some change from your dull life what sorrow is it that seems to press so hard on you to-day and why do you think it necessary to give me words of warning? What shadow has come between us? What shadow? echoed the old man, peering at him from under his bent brows. None of my throwing, boy. But do you forget what day it is? A dark anniversary for me, if not for you. And I scarcely thought you would have let it pass without a thought. Nay, I need not wish its darkness to lie on you for ever either. But, Antoine, remember, you are all I have left. In my silent, lonely life and this dull house, and I, always a reserved and seeming loveless man, you may well pine for something more, some lighter, gayer time, and ever broad over the means to find it. But remember, my son, that you are by birth above the paltry pleasures of the herd, that you can come to me and ask for money if you covet some pastime that befits you, that you need conceal nothing from me, have no friend that I may not know also. Antoine's face flushed for a moment. It was seldom indeed that his grandfather spoke in a voice so tender, and so yearning. Almost insensibly his arm stole round the old man's neck. What is it? he said again. What have I done? I accuse you of nothing, lad, replied his grandfather, gently disengaging himself. I thought perhaps your tastes may have needed more money. You do not gamble, Antoine. You are never out late, for I can hear you come in and the sound of your violin penetrates to my room, so that I know when you are at home. 
I don't expect you to be always with me. I would not have it so. But when you want money... Grandfather, said the young man hastily, I know not what you mean. Have I ever asked you for more than the allowance you make me? Do I complain, except for the two or three bills that you have paid for me of your own free will? Do I exceed your bounty? Talk not of bounty, boy, said the elder, flushing in his turn. Antoine, could you read my heart, you would see that all I desire is to show to you the love that the world would give me no credit for, that my own children even, thy, thy mother, Antoine, and, and Sarah, ah, leave me just now, my dear, I'm surely growing old and childish. But I have still enough of the old manhood left not to wish even my grandson to witness my weakness. Leave me, boy, and let us meet at supper in my room. I shall go out presently to see old Pierre, and if I can, to bring him home with me. Poor old faithful Pierre! The young man slowly left the warehouse and ascended the stairs into the house, when he shut himself in his own room and flung himself into a chair in profound dejection. He had scarcely done so when a man came from the upper warehouse, a room when silk, both warp and woof, was given out to the workpeople to be wound of bobbins or spread into the web before it was fixed in the loom. After every such operation this silk was brought back to be reweighed, and only when the piece was finished in a woven fabric did it find its way into the lower warehouse, there to be measured and inspected. Access was gained to this upper warehouse by a door in a back street, inscribed with the words, A Dormeur, Weaver's Entrance, and thence the workpeople of whom there were many each day, waiting their turn went across a paved yard and into a passage terminating in a kind of square lobby at the bottom of the deep well which lighted the gloomy staircase by a glazed window from the roof of the house close to this lobby was a sliding panel opening on a counter where the great scales hung for weighing the silk and here weavers and winders gave in or took out their work from the scale foreman whose name was bashley one of those bad men who, with a bullying pretense of candour and honesty, contrive to impose even on the victims over whom they tyrannise, and at the same time, as it were, wrest from their superiors the acknowledgment that they are rough diamonds. By a horrible fiction it is often thought that such a man is just fit to deal with workpeople. The same opinion prevailed then, and thus Bashley was able to get a character which obtained for him a place in the warehouse of Anton Dormeur. He had been there for some twelve months, in place of old Pierre Dobry, a faithful fellow who had joined his old master in London after the calamities which drove them both from France. Pierre had been in Paris and had escaped to bring to his master the awful intelligence that the daughter he had denounced was now beyond his relentless anger. But the old man, having grown old and feeble, 
had retired with a pension to the French hospital which then stood in St. Luke's and was called La Providence, a refuge founded to receive poor Protestant emigres, mostly aged men and women who had their little rooms quaintly furnished with their own poor household goods and who walked daily in the quadrangle laid out in beds and borders. Bashley had been only fifteen months in Dormeur's service, and yet he had come between the grandfather and Antoine, suggesting suspicions of the young man's probity, but so artfully, that while he only seemed to hint at small blemishes, which he pointed out for the sake of the lad's future welfare, he left so much to be inferred that the old man had already a new trouble added to his load. Bashley's insinuations, when analysed, came in effect to charging Antoine with small peculations in order to increase the amount of his allowance, to taking beforehand what he, of course, might consider would be his own some day, as the scoundrel would have put it. Not only this, but he hinted at low companions, at a secret love affair with a girl far beneath him in station. Of this he would, if necessary, furnish proof. It was with a troubled heart that Anton Dormeur, having at last escaped from a whispered conference with Bashley, locked up the warehouse and went slowly out towards Shoreditch on his way to the Providence. Old Pierre had been the early guide, philosopher and friend of the little orphan boy, and the keen-faced pippin-skinned old Frenchman had the courage of his convictions, and roundly swore many innocent French oaths that afternoon when his old employer and present patron and friend paced with him along the path of the old quadrangle and told him his suspicions. So that man of Blake that Bashley is at the bottom of this also, he said presently. Why did you send me away and take that liar, that, that ventre bleu, that hyena? But what should it be true, Pierre? My heart is very heavy. I tell you it is not true. But about the girl, he said he could prove it. And yet the boy came and rested his hand upon my shoulder today as if he were candor itself. Let him prove it. He swears he will. What then? What then? Do you too think it is possible to breathe? I think it is quite possible that Antoine may be in love, and in love with one who is poor, but not ignoble, no, never, not ignoble. There was a strange light in the old foreman's eyes, a strange look in his face as he said this, so that Anton Dormeur stopped him suddenly. Pierre, you know something of this, he cried. You shall tell me, what does it mean? I'm not sure that I can tell you, replied the old man thoughtfully. Still you invite me to sup with you to-night. Antoine will be there. Ah, there again. This man Bashley told me as one proof of his knowledge that even to-night, this night, that I have bidden him to meet me, Antoine will not be at home, that he may stay away altogether to avoid my questioning, that he will certainly disappoint me for the sake of this girl with whom he has an engagement. How then? Pierre was silent for a moment. A troubled look puckered his face. Then a keen sudden gleam of surprise and intelligence seemed to shoot across it. 
"'You said supper at nine, did you not?' he said quietly. "'Yes, the nights are dark.' "'Make it ten, nevertheless.' "'Agreed, but why? And what is there working in your brain, Dobree?' "'Never mind, monsieur, but lend me one or two, three sovereigns.' "'Pierre, you are extravagant. What can you want with them? There will be no company. Your dress is good enough.' There will be Master Antoine, perhaps a lady, but that I cannot tell. There may even be two ladies. Pierre, it is ill-jesting, said Dormeur, turning pale and with an angry glance. Do you remember what day it is? Good heaven, Master, forgive me. I had quite another thought than of the day. Pardon me a thousand times. Pardon me. I could cut out my thoughtless tongue. And yet, believe me, I meant, never mind what I meant. They had reached the passage leading to Dobre's queer little oak-panelled room, and as the door was open, both the old men entered, Dormeur walking up to the mantelpiece and fiddling about there with some old china cups and other little ornaments with which it was adorned. Turned with its face to the wall was a small trumpery frame, containing, as it seemed, some common-looking picture, and quite absently, and as though he scarcely knew what he was doing, the old man placed his fingers on it to turn its face outwards. Anton Dormeur gave a low cry, and placed his hand upon his companion's arm. "'Where did you get this?' he said slowly looking his old foreman in the face it is not old it cannot have been painted more than a year and yet as a mere likeness from memory it is wonderful who could have done it not you pierre that is impossible dobre had recovered himself you know that i came from paris he said with his eyes cast down you know, too, how a picture may be retouched and made to look like new. But you are deceiving me. This is no retouching. It is clumsy, coarse, and except in the evidence that the face itself must have been beautiful, not a good likeness. You wonder I can talk so calmly of this, a poor resemblance of the bright fair girl, of my Sarah, mine although... Dubree, tell me how you came by this. I will tell you to-night, muttered the old man. I swear to you that I will tell you to-night. And to-night I will show you a portrait on ivory, one that will make you think you see her as you once knew her, Pierre. A picture I keep among some relics and look at often, oftener than you think or anyone in the world could guess. Good-bye, or rather till nine, no, ten to-night, au revoir. When his grandfather had left the house, Antoine, who was restless, unhappy, and full of vague surmises, sat for some time with his head in his hands, and at last only roused himself with an effort. It was growing dusk already for autumn had given place to winter, and the days were short. There was still light enough, however, for him to see to write a letter, 
and in a few lines he told his grandfather that he should be with him at nine o'clock, and would then ask him to give him back the confidence that once existed between them, or to charge him with a fault that he had committed. He felt how vague this was, and almost hesitated, but he carried the letter to the sitting-room, nevertheless, and opening the door, gently advanced towards the table. It was a large, barely furnished room, and yet not without evidence of luxury, or at all events of ornament. The great carved chimney-piece was surmounted by an old mirror with scones containing candles. A leathern chair was drawn up to the hearth. On the table itself was a silver standish with writing materials and a tall goblet of Venetian glass, while some rare china stood on a cabinet near the window. Antoine so rarely entered this room except at night, and to bear his grandfather company for an hour or two before bedtime, that he involuntarily glanced round it now in the fast-fading twilight. In that moment he remarked that the door of the cabinet was unlocked, a circumstance so unusual that he went towards it and looked inside to note what might be the reason of such carelessness. Then, seeing this silver cup on the shelf, he carried it to the window and looked curiously at its contents. There was some reason for its doing so. In that dim, silent room, where only its master came daily, and the one domestic who, with an old housekeeper, attended to the wants of Dormeur and his grandson, and did a little dusting once a week, the silver cup had become the receptacle of small trinkets of coins and quaint pieces of jewellery. It was a common custom for the old man to take it out of the cabinet when his eyes were tired with reading and to turn over these tarnished treasures, some of which were in small Morocco cases. To one of the latter Antoine's attention was directed, for it lay open as though it had been hastily placed there, and covered with a piece of torn point lace. Removing this, the young man saw a portrait, the picture of a face so sweet, and eyes so penetrating, that he uttered an involuntary cry. It was a deeper feeling than mere surprise or admiration that prompted it, however. His hand trembled as he replaced the miniature, after gazing at it with an expression of mingled wonder and terror. At that instant the watchman passed crying the first hour after dark, and carefully replacing the cup, he turned the key in the cabinet door and hurried from the room. Now all of my story that remains to tell took place in the next three hours, after Antoine left the house with a strange sense of wonder and confusion in his mind. So I must explain a little the situation of the young man, the enmity of Bashley. It had happened then, some months before, that Bashley, being away for a day's holiday, Antoine took his place at the scale for it was a slack time, and few workpeople were there to be served. He believed he had given out the last skein of silk, and had weighed the last bobbin, so shutting the slide and putting up the bar, he unlocked an inner door, and went into the house and up the stairs. Pausing on the first landing, as he frequently did, to look thoughtfully over the balustrade and down the well staircase, he became aware that one person yet remained quietly seated on the bench below. 
as he uttered some slight exclamation at his own negligence a face was turned upward towards his own a face of such sweet pure girlish beauty that he held his breath lest it should be bent from his searching gaze as indeed it was but not before the plain straw bonnet had fallen backward and left a wealth of sunny hair glowing beneath the light that shone down upon it a confused sense of some picture of an angel upon jacob's ladder that he had seen in an old family bible came into antoine's thoughts as he stood and looked but in another moment the girl had replaced her bonnet and with her face bent down sat waiting as before in a minute he was beside her pardon me he said with an involuntary bow i thought every one had gone what is it that i can do for you there was no embarrassment except that of modesty as she courtesied before him she might have been a young duchess by the frankness with which she met his look i come from marie rondeau she said who has sprained her foot and cannot walk mr bashley said she might send for the money due to her if she was still lame your name is then he inquired pausing for her to fill up the question by her answer sarah rondeau she said simply it is for my aunt that i come i live with my aunt and bashley does he did he has he visited you to bring you money already the lad felt a short jealous pang but knew not what it was he has been to measure our work but not to bring money my aunt comes here herself but bashley had been there and the image of this young girl had roused his sordid fancy is it a wonder that he soon began to hate his young master antoine felt the warm blood in his face as he wrapped in a paper the few shillings that were due do not come again on such an errand he said i will call and see if your aunt is better and will if necessary bring some more money myself there is little need to say that antoine kept his promise that merry bustling little marie rondeau how unlike her niece she was to be sure was in a constant tremor when the little wicket gate of her garden clicked and she looking through the leaden casement of the upper room saw the young master coming along the little path with its two rows of oyster-shells dividing it from the gay plots of gillyflowers, double-stocks, and sweet-williams. She trembled, too, for the peace of the fair girl, who had too soon learned to know his footstep and to flush with pleasure at his approach. Already trouble seemed to threaten them, for Bashley had warned her, and in a coarse, insolent way had said he meant to be Sarah's sweetheart himself, or they might seek work elsewhere one night when antoine entered the garden he was surprised to find old pierre d'aubry there you must come no more yet if you would spare this child from sorrow he said after talking long and earnestly your new foreman watches you and already hints to your grandfather that you are engaged in some mean intrigue you bring evil where i would have you do good master antoine come no more i entreat you and uh, sarah does she wish that also said the young fellow reddening i have never spoken a word to her that could not be said before her aunt why do you interpose peter d'aubray excuse me the aunt is my cousin the child my ward 
and I know your grandfather well. For a month you must not come, but trust me, and give me your word, and all may yet go well. So it was a month since Antoine had been to the little house in Vetnal Green, and in all that slack time neither Sarah nor her aunt had been to the warehouse for work or money. But on that night when Antoine was to sup with his grandfather, the month's probation was at an end. Even had it not been, he would have felt that he must break his promise, for on that very morning, as he stood at the door after the warehouse had been opened, a boy ran up and placed a note in his hand, a mere slip of paper on which was scrawled, Will you never come again, S.R.? His sensitive nature was shocked at such summons, and for the first time he had a sharp pang of doubt whether he was not to be awakened from a foolish dream. It was with a heavy heart that he bent his steps along the narrow tangle of streets that lay between his house and the edge of a great piece of waste ground known as Hare Street Fields, and even had he been less preoccupied he might not have noticed that he was followed by two men who kept close to him in the shadows of the houses and walked as noiselessly as cats and with the same stealthy tread. Mrs. Rondeau was sitting in her lower room, sewing by the light of a weaver's oil lamp, which hung from a string fastened to the mantelpiece. The place was very bare. Few of the little ornaments that usually decorate even a poor home remained, and the good woman's eyes were red with recent crying. The loom in the upper part of the house was empty, and so was the cupboard, or very nearly so. "'There goes the quarter,' she said, as she heard the chiming of a distant clock. "'I wish I'd gone myself instead of sending the poor child. What would Peter say if he knew? Ah! And what would that old flinty-hearted wretch say if he knew?' How I wish she would come, even if she came back without the money. The night had set in gloomily enough, as Sarah Rondeau went quickly through the now almost deserted streets on her way to a dim shop, where three golden balls hung to an iron bracket at the door, to show that a pawnbroker's business was carried on within. It was not the first visit she had made to this establishment, for the poor little household ornaments, the loss of which had left her home so bleak and bare, were now in the safekeeping of the proprietor, but still she shrank back as she approached a dim side entrance in a narrow street, and drawing her bonnet closer over her face, pushed open a base door, and entered a dark passage divided on one side into a row of narrow cells, separated from each other by wooden partitions. She made so little noise, and still kept so far back in the pervading gloom, that her presence was unnoticed by a shabby-looking man, who was just then engaged in earnest conversation with somebody in the next box. Before she had spoken, and while she was yet in the shadow of the partition, she thought she recognized the voice of the person who was speaking as that of Bashley, and held her breath to listen for a name was mentioned which sent the blood back to her heart and made her feel sick and faint. "'Well, as long as everything's safe,' said the pawnbroker's assistant, who leaned his elbows on the counter, so that his head was close to the partition, 
but we've got a good deal here now you know and if the thing should be found out yeah who's to find out retorted bashley i tell you everything's ready and the risk's mine Aldermer's half childish and as to the young one i'll tell you he's safe enough for a week if i like to keep him so he'd an appointment to supper with the old man to-night and he won't keep it if he's not on his way now to see the girl he's tied up neck and heels by this time and in a safe place out of harm's way i tell you i can be back here in an hour or two you're too deep in it now to draw back and besides who can swear to raw silk i shall go first and look after the girl then i mean to call on the old man and send him out on a wild goose chase the rest's easy for i've a key and a light cart at the back of the warehouse will bring the silk here in no time the game is in my hands now and i shall play to win but when the young man tells his version of the story how can he he comes out without knowing where from and if ever he did he's been in an empty house a pretty story no no if the old man believes it he won't face the disgrace for he more than half suspects his grandson as it is come now will you or won't you sarah rondeau crouching by the door hears this with an undefined fear which paralyzes her for a moment but leaves one thought in her troubled mind some foul plot is hatching against antoine and she is powerless to hinder it no one thing she can do if only she can creep back unnoticed she will use all her strength to reach mr dormeur's house and tell him what she has heard it is a question of minutes walking backward and pressing slowly against the noiseless door she slips out again and like one pursued begins to run at her utmost speed through the darkened streets end of chapter two part one read by lars rolander